Hi, this is Jordan. You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Nordics podcast, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the Nordic region. I specialize in the gaming industry and today I am your host. Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by Tobias Shogren, Kit Eckloff, Patrick Liu, and Jacob Jostad to discuss roadmapping to success through product vision and strategy. Uh, before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Um, Peter, do you, uh, Patrick, do you want to go first, sorry? Sure. Um, yeah, I've been working with games and tech for a while now and been around i suppose most of the big uh, gaming companies uh here uh with you know i've been at starbreeze where where tobias is today and at dice and uh king mojang uh spotify uh, mostly in different types of product roles uh, the last well 10 years or so uh so that's uh, kind of where where i'm at at the moment and today i'm at uh, fast travel games as head of publishing so we specialize in uh, vr games perfect uh jacob yeah sure i'm uh, jacob jorset uh, product marketing manager at paradox interactive um, which means you know setting the marketing strategy marketing lesson plans and such for our products uh, working quite closely to our development teams uh, early on and then up until launch and, and beyond launch, of course. Um, so before that, I worked at Walt Disney with uh, e-commerce and uh, brand management. So, yeah. Perfect. Uh, Kit? Yeah, hi. Uh, I've been with EA and DICE for a little more than 10 years uh, now. I started as a game designer intern, and today I'm the producer representative for multiplayer level production in Battlefield. Uh, I did a quick turn into QA there in the beginning of my career, working with Patrick here, as actually, that was nice. Uh, uh, when I'm not creating or playing video games, I prefer practicing sports or spending time with my kids and family and friends. Um, that's, that's the short story. Brilliant. And uh, last but certainly not least, Tobias. Hello. Yeah, I got started in 96. It was as a programmer um, doing some sort of games at that time and then actually ended up uh, at uh, DICE uh, after that uh, during the first release of Battlefield 1942. I worked about seven, eight years as an agent helping game developers to sell their games to publishers. And I also had a stint at uh, at Paradox and running the daughter company White Wolf there for a while and tried out mobile games at Stardoll and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> uh, and uh, since about a year, um, uh, the CEO here at uh, Starbeast. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you all for your introductions. Um, so now we've got a, a context to everyone here. Let's move on to the topic in focus. Uh, you all have a question or statement on roadmapping to success through product vision and strategy. And as usual, I'll work around the room asking each of you to post your questions and the reason that behind it. Uh, each of you will have the opportunity to give your take on the situation. Um, and then we'll loop back and see how other people's answers have potentially affected your own. Um, so let's start with Jacob. Sure. All right. Um, so my question, um, I mean, we all know that production timelines in video games can have major elements of uh, unpredictability, shall we say? Um, so be it with like external things like technological shifts or COVID-19 or, or even internal things like design difficulties or like organizing talent in the right way. So, um, so these can result in production delays, you know, pushing the release date and uh, really altering the market conditions when the product will launch. So, you know, the market appetite for a certain game might change, you know, we've seen this with Battle Royale or other, other types of games. So my question is really around how can you balance between following the original product vision, the creative vision, you know, the North Star, so to speak, and ensure that the product offering in the relevant uh, market conditions 
at the time at the time of launch. Like how how can you balance between those two? Um, okay, brilliant question, brilliant. Kit, do you want to kick us off with an answer there? Yeah, sure. It's a tough question for sure. Um, so I, I think when I was thinking about this question, there, there was an extreme case uh, that came to my mind that I thought might be a good case study actually for this. Uh, remember Duke Nukem and the production for, for that game? which is like an extreme case where you would, you know, I think the development was over, I mean, it was over years and years. I think it even skipped like a console generation during the production time or something, which is insane. <laughs> but it, it makes for a good case study, I guess. So with that in mind, uh, I'm thinking that there might be, it, it, it is a huge cost, right, to change your mind during development. And it, it might be that the cost to do changes, even if the market changes a bit, might be too high to for that to actually be be something that you would consider. Is that that's the first thing I'm thinking? I I might be wrong there, but it's definitely something that you you should you should think very long and thorough about before doing something like that. And I'm I'm wondering if it's actually better just to release the game as it was intended and take the hit of that relevance and maybe then use like the tech investments you got from that, the learnings you got from that, and then start on something else instead. And and, and maybe that, that second game will become an even better game than, than the first one. Um, it, it's, it, it, to me, it seems like it's gonna be, it, it's a really high cost move to do any big changes. If, if the relevance is changing that much, so that you think that your game won't be relevant anymore. And just looking back at, at, at Duke Nukem, they never basically released the game. I think they eventually did, but no one bought it because it, if they would have after a few years development and not trying to like uh, become more relevant, so to say, they probably would have sold more copies and, and learned something from it. I, that, that's, that's what I thought about when I heard the question anyway. I still <clears throat> I remember we at the first work I had up here in Stockholm. We played uh, the original Duke Nukem, so to say, on the on the local area network here <laughs> amongst the computers. That was a lot of fun. I remember. But I on that question, I I was thinking. Um, <clears throat> I mean, there are some few games that have been really like perfect in timing, but the question is like, was that actually planning? I mean, the the famous or example is is Rovio, right, with um, at Angry Birds which was you know not the first game they tried to put on the market right and patrick you obviously know this story much better than i do but but they've been pretty you know open about the fact that you know tried it several times and now now this was it then and kind of not that money much money for marketing and so they tried like youtube clips and everything and it was like a perfect mix of a new way of marketing and uh, handheld phones with touch interface finally being there in a big enough thing and not enough competitors and it was like perfect alignment and i i don't think anyone taking you know the credit for like oh no that was all planned <laughs> this was exactly how it should be right so sometimes like the most successful of those cases i wonder how many of those were like perfect planning rather than sometimes just stars align and, and a little bit of coincidence and luck right um, yeah, I, mean, I think it's it depends a lot on what kind of product you're making. Like you know, this AAA big budget games, of course, is is much harder to pivot, uh, and you know, you very very quickly, you know, are in a sunk cost fallacy. There, you just keep investing because you you it's too expensive to pivot. Um, yeah, I mean, and and going back to the Royal example, you know, another pivot that we made was really uh, going into free-to-play because I think people tend to forget that the original Angry Birds was actually a paid game. It was a $1 game. And uh, when we started uh, Rovio Sweden, um, it was uh, 2012, and it was the very same year, I can remind you, was when uh, Candy Crush came out on mobile and uh, Clash of Clans was launched. And so, you know, we came in there as a, a team, a lot of us from Dice, uh, is like, yeah, we're gonna, you know, bring AAA to mobile. It's gonna be so good. And uh, I think pretty quickly we learned the hard way that that's not gonna fly uh, in the new markets. And I think you need to be humble 
to that uh, situation and and you know we we pivoted the entire studio I mean, we we knew we wanted to make mobile games we knew, we knew we wanted to we're probably going to go to uh, free to play but maybe you know not as painful and and fast as we did uh, and we learned a lot and was I don't know 3 years later we did uh, you know uh, launch Angry Birds 2 which was you know the I suppose the first successful free-to-play effort from Rovio. There were a couple of before that, but they were not that successful. Um, so there was a lot of learnings along the way. And if you can afford to tr you know, launch products or pivots, that that would be great. But otherwise, you know, try to look for where you know, is there any overlap between your current products and the uh, and the current markets if that you can salvage. Otherwise, and I'm also thinking about the perception of if the customers then look at it, it's like, hey, you're just doing that because this is the new, you know, cool thing to have uh, on the market right now, and and they they see you a little bit as just like see seeking the opportunity rather than you know generally trying to make good entertainment for them to to have fun with. Um, I, I don't think that's it's not the basis for the best kind of. Um, um, Customer satisfaction, uh, I guess. I, I, there, there might be a, a multiplayer FPS uh, kind of game that did something like that with um, a battle royale kind of uh, thing, uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, but um, you know, it, it's it's that's a tricky it's a tricky prospect that. And and again, if you have a good enough product, you might actually uh, create a market, right? something that nobody knew that was actually you know they wanted but you, you've given it to them and you know here, here you are perfect market conditions because you created that this need yeah i think you're onto something there with Tobias. like uh, if you really find something that resonates with players uh you know keep building on that and you know uh don't just jump to the next thing i mean for example now with the huge interest and consumer hype and interest in like uh squid game the korean series like i'm sure there are teams over the world like scrambling to you know build stuff that mimic mimics the squid game type of game but you know in two or three or four years when they actually have something to show you know stuff things might have shifted so um i would rather base things in something that we kind of inherent player needs that we know exist uh, and can verify and then at least know that we will have some kind of consistent appeal so yeah really look at us here i mean if i if i <clears throat> kit is working on a studio that basically made the battlefield since 2001 right um jacob i mean you, you guys been doing uh paradox been doing uh, grand strategy games for a long time i mean and and fast travel games of course uh new in a sense but you you're really veterans in 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 kind of vr at this point in time and uh my game here with but payday has been around for well, it's 10 years since the first payday released, right? And that's what we're focusing on still. So, I mean, I don't know, this market window kind of an adapting to it. I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure we live up to it. <laughs> I think it depends on what kind of company, you know, vision you have or, you know, what your business is. Like, if you compare, say, you know, Last of Us 2 or, or Naughty Dog and, and then, you know, look at, uh, you know, King or and Candy Crush, like they're very different businesses and they move at very different paces. And so you have different ways to to adapt and pivot in that sense. Uh, but I think all all of us are from perhaps slower moving businesses in that sense. Yeah, I think you're also onto something that there is a risk there. Like if you're jumping onto something that seems very relevant at this time, but then it also takes a bit of time to actually release something that market might get saturated or there might be someone else that has already taken the lead which you won't be able to maybe uh, um, get to the same level as that that game for some whatever reason so i think that there is a risk also to try to you know change or, or just jump on something because it's very re relevant right now um but yeah yeah i, mean, I think to, to jacob's uh, example there with squid game like we see uh, now some some products are able to pivot very fast. You know, we're seeing a lot of Squid Game-like games being built uh, by by creators in in Minecraft and in Roblox. So that's actually happening, and they they could get that thing out in a matter of days, really. And they're making money from that. 
right? Yeah. So you you can uh, if you have the in the right uh, premise there. And if you're going about that particular tactics, I think it's very important to to dedicate enough time to actually monitor and catch those trends really, really early. So you have to have you know dedicated teams who supply these reports on a you know daily basis, basically, in order to make the best decisions. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, excellent um, answers to that question. I thought that was a great discussion there. I love that. Uh, on to the next question then. Um, Tobias, are you okay to pose yours now? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to read it back here from, from my, my phone. Um, so I think there is a um, there is a risk, right, when you're talking about uh, um, your vision forward, that especially in a, a hardcore studio or, and maybe perhaps... Uh, most relevant for a new startup that you kind of um, exchange your your vision of your company with your product vision so uh, how how do you go about when you're you know uh, when you are a studio uh, to make sure that you have a longevity in your 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 vision so it's not like you you actually you released your game and then then there's kind of nothing right you've achieved your goals and um, how do you make sure you have something to, to strive for, for, for the long run and really building a company rather than just a product? Patrick, if we uh, jump to you first on that one. Uh, incredibly hard question. Um, I mean, I, I don't think it's necessarily a problem uh, always that you, you know, your product goal is the same as your company goal. I mean, I think uh, maybe Dice is an example where, you know, it is very much synonymous with with Battlefield. There's been attempts at making other things. I, I was part of that too, and they have not, you know, been that successful to be honest. And I think that's okay, uh, you know, for for the company. But you know, in other cases, I think maybe it's good to be clear to the teams to separate between. You know what the end state is uh, for the company, and and say that you know the the games that we're making they are uh, steps towards that end state for the company or the studio. Um, that you know you, you separate the the goal and and the journey to reach that goal in a sense, um, and just keep reminding people about what they are. Um, very vague, but uh, yeah, I think uh, you know uh, maybe not from the gaming. Uh, uh, space, but and at Spotify, it's it's very clear, right? Because they, 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 there's a north star that that we worked with, and they say our north star for the next ten years that's to uh, you know enable creators to make a living out of Spotify. That's the goal for the for the studio and the company. And then you know people go and try to get to that through the products they have, uh, and then that's a separation in that sense. But isn't also Mojang a good example of of a studio which like really started with one one main game, but now very I think at least very successfully is is branching out and out and doing more and more. Yeah, I was part of that. <laughs> that was my responsibility. Uh, my last job, where you know uh, I was no everything that's not vanilla Minecraft, right? How do you expand on that? And I think it's the jury still out on uh, is Mojang a one-trick pony or not, uh, even though that it's a very big pony. Um, but <laughs> to you know, try to diversify and say that we're we're not just about this game. We we need to create a. I suppose yeah, that's when you actually go into territory of creating a franchise. Like this is a franchise now. This is not one product. And then you have to figure out like how do you how do we diversify. Uh, your franchise and what kind of spaces do you go into? Um, you know, That's what... exactly how I was thinking about this as well. I, I was almost thinking this like because you mentioned it like the game and the studio vision, but I really wanted to get franchise like in between there as well. I think there's really three visions they need to work with here. There's the studio vision, the franchise vision and the project vision and those needs to be separate. And I'm wondering if it's, uh, I mean, if I think it's good if you can if you can assign different faces, uh, uh, people faces to these. 
so there's one phase like for for this for everyone to see when it comes to the studio vision then there's another phase that is responsible for the franchise vision for, for example just for the clarity to people to see like who is driving what and the separation between them and I'm also thinking if the studio vision, I mean, if, 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 you, if you're able to do that, to split it up so it, you know, the, the communication becomes clear on each one of them and there's like a separation because there's a person, a, a different person for each one. I also think that the studio might be able to focus a little bit more on like soft values. So you get another type of um, strategy around the, the studio vision rather than the other franchise and, and, and project. I don't know. What do you think about this, Patrick? But is that something you were working with also there on Mojang? Yeah, no, we tried a lot of different ways to to get you know, different stabs at this, and I don't, I'm not sure we or, or Mojang or have been successful yet. Like I think it is still work to do uh, on how to make that kind of separation on the different layers that you that you're talking about. Um, I think it's it's getting there, but there's still work to do. Yeah, one thing that I keep coming back to in Tobias' question is, you know, the being product focused. Um, and like in, in my my experience, like I met plenty of talented developers who are really like passionate about the particular system, like in, for example, the his, historical strategy game, and like they work on that system every single day, relentless focus. And it's no wonder then for them, you know, that is their world, that is what they're working on, that is what they're passionate about. Uh, that is the next goal, that is, that is the next milestone in view for them. So I don't think like a studio vision is necessarily going to like shine brighter for them on a daily basis than what they're passionate about and what they're working on. Um, so so I, I see it as like, it, having a product focus doesn't necessarily come at the expense of like believing in the product vision or in the um, studio vision I mean um, so I think instead like a studio vision can provide a function as like a talent talent management savior almost like in that you know position when you're in between products you're like oh now we've shipped this game what should what should I do now um, then the staff can look back at like okay but we're still a studio that's, for example, really passionate about making uh, big-scale multiplayer team shooters. I want to be a part of that. Like, it's still a, as a studio vision, that's something that people can buy into, but still being product-focused. And I think uh, you, Jakob, at, at Paradox, you guys have a very good definition of what kind of games uh, is the core of, of Paradox, right? You have the replayability factor and... Um, Sometimes since I worked there, so I'm trying to remember them. Like it's gameplay over art and so forth. You have a very good good um, definitions on your available on your website as well for what what it kind of constitutes a, a paradox games. And I think uh, beautifully, you know, delivers on that time and time and over. I, that's a really good point. Also for the profile for the studio, like to for someone that that would like to come and work at one of these studios. I mean, Paradox or Dice, whatever studio it is. To know that that what type of studio it is, that is part of the studio vision, right? Uh, and the identity of it. And it's really easy then to understand what type of games you're gonna work on if you if you join that studio. So yeah, you're right. It, like that is still really important and connected to the franchise vision for whatever franchises, if it's one or several that that team has or that project has, or studio has. Brilliant, brilliant. Sorry, did you have uh, something else to add there, Kate? Sorry. No, I just said uh, it's definitely connected. Uh, I was thinking more about how you could separate them when I was talking about the question, but now when we had the discussion, I definitely, uh, I mean, I, I see that, you know, they're, they're definitely connected and they need to connect it that way so that you get a, a red line between all of these type of visions. Perfect, perfect. I think, you know, when it's a really difficult um, uh, a question when everyone doesn't want me to pick on them first, and I think that's what happened after Tobias's question there. Um, so, Patrick, do you want to pose the next question for us? Yeah, um, so I think we touched upon uh, a lot of it already. I think a lot of the questions that we have are more or less related, uh, but 
now you 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 do talk about a vision and you know why why do you exist and why are you here at this studio and so on and kind of yeah a long a longer term vision and then uh, as we also mentioned like how do you then break it down into chunks that well one can digest and understand and actually take action on uh, which essentially is the roadmap right so so the, the you know, concise question is how do you you know what processes or tools do you have to translate your long-term vision to a roadmap um if we go oh tobias you jump it in perfect <laughs> Yeah, sure. <clears throat> no, but it's it's something we've been been thinking about a lot. As as uh, and I, I used to mention the paradox and stories as some of the the uh, kind of um, pioneers in in games as a service of of premium games here, at least in in the Nordic region. Um, you know, releasing a game and then doing DLCs and and having a really good business of actually selling selling uh, DLCs over long uh, long time, right? And then I think to do that, you need to have a very clear understanding of what what the core of your product is from the beginning, but also have this long term vision when you're actually you know, working on it. We are working on payday three right now. So, of course, we're thinking about that as a as a premium game releasing, but we also know that we, we want it to live for another six to eight years or even longer after we released it. Right. So. So we're really trying to to make sure that 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 vision is supported also kind of. Uh, uh, long term, and then then it becomes that if I if I read your question correctly, Patrick, I'm not I'm not sure I do, so you <laughs> gotta correct me here. But but it really comes down to that: uh, where do we want to be year one, year two, year three, kind of, and and also have a flexibility in understanding that games industry is awesome because stuff will happen right <laughs> that you didn't expect. There will be new platforms or or changes in business models or whatever it is. So it's like have that flexibility also almost like have the vision of not knowing what you're supposed to do because you just know that you will have to change at some some point in time and, and rethink things. Um, but yeah, we, we at least when we when we look at our 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 vision, both as a studio and uh, from a product perspective, we really try to both be very precise in what we want to achieve during uh, certain points in time, but also have that. Let's a big part of it is just learnings and being able to to change and react on on market conditions, basically. But and, and in the end, I think the 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 actual core that just brings us forward, I rather call it the the purpose, the the, the purpose of what we were doing, and that's that's what kind of consisting during that journey and uh, taking us forward. Um. In my experience, like there can be a tendency of when you, you know, go in to try to translate that uh, vision into a roadmap, there can be a tendency of uh, sometimes doing it a bit too early. Like you're you're eager to get through pre-production and you just want to get on with it, plan it out. Uh, but uh, I think plenty of lessons have have been had on like doing that too quickly. Like the result of pre-production needs to be quite golden, like uh, and having the proper kind of like speeding through it carelessly will punish you later. Um, so I see an important stepping stone is you know bringing the insights about the target audience uh, to the development teams, uh, and not just like here's the deck, but like having it relevant, understandable, actionable. So the pre-production is like really really strong uh, and then you can build the roadmap from there uh, and it also depends on kind of how granular you want to be if you want to do it really granular then you're going to have to involve uh, quite detailed like tech people and you know everyone down to the to the grassroots really so it depends on which scale you want to do with that yeah when i was thinking about this question uh i really tried to uh figure out like what like what what are process and tools that I've used or that I've been yeah used really to uh, <laughs> to 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 take a vision and then and get it you know down on a roadmap and I mean what are the things you're actually doing to get that translation happening right that that is that is a tricky thing to to um, 
to articulate, but I, I think I got something eventually when I thought about this. And, and for me, it's, it's sort of, of, it's almost like I can, I can create three buckets. So like if, if, if there is a vision and, and then the team is gonna tackle that vision, uh, I om what I really like is that you, you, can, you can start with three buckets, uh, really high level like. So what are the first things we're gonna do? What are the next things we're gonna do? And what, what are like the last things we're gonna do? Thinking that way, we'll be able to translate or materialize like where do we need to start on this vision first, like, and then you have an idea on like what are the next things we're gonna do, and once you have that, that that is like a product. First, what we do first, what we do next, and then like the last things you do, I definitely see those like those are can be over ambitious things, or they can be polished things, or they can be things that simply will be cut or things that you eventually will find out by iterating on the things you first did. So there's a bunch of things like happening at the, uh, and so, so that's like my first thought about how, what like process or tools I'm using or we're using to, to materialize a, a, a vision like that. But I also think that in, it's also a little bit different because if, if there's something you're gonna build and then release, that's quite, that's kind of true. But if it's something that lives in life service, if it's um, a part of the game that, that is living, this is like a slow sliding scale. You're always gonna think about or have to be like, uh, go back and materialize this roadmap. Like every time you need to think like, okay, what's the next thing? And then we look at, and the next month we look at, okay, what was this? What was the thing after that? And then you see, yeah, but we wanna change this a little bit. And then you're always gonna have like three buckets where you always can have something you wanna work on now and next and then eventually. So I think that that's sort of how I, how I <laughs> came to think about this and, and how I work with this uh, in reality. And I guess also, I mean, we are in the business of iteration and, and testing and trying and kind of visualizing and go back and repeat, kind of, right? That's and, and in any process we do, I guess that's part of it as well as like translating the, the vision to to roadmap, right? Test it, redo. Be be self-critical right, in that process. Yeah, I agree. Again, a really good good comments. I think it's yeah. No, one is you know, breaking things down into different time buckets, as Kit said. I think that that's that's pretty cool. And we are you know we do work very iteratively in the, in this business, I suppose, with you know software development and and whatnot. Um, I I was thinking also like. Uh, like who does what is another aspect. Like who who comes up with this and who translates this. Also, it looks like uh, you do want to involve the team, of course, in in all this. But you also normally have some leaders or some visionaries that that come up with you know the original vision, and you know where do they meet, right? Uh, and I'm I'm thinking like that normally you know the 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 leader or visionaries they set some sort of uh, goal initially like this is this is what we want to achieve with this product or with this studio and uh, they had to articulate I suppose how what that is uh, and and then uh, well everyone else basically have to figure out uh, how to reach that through uh, uh, creating the roadmap right so but you know it's both like bottoms up and and top down uh, in in a way. Uh, so you know, I we I, I used for example OKRs as a method uh, concretely in in a few different companies, um, and that's like one way of doing it. But you know, there there are many ways I suppose, and there isn't a, a one one single answer to that. And I. I can definitely visualize uh, Patrick in front of me thinking about like I'm gonna turn this uh, roadmap into a <laughs> or vision into roadmap with the cat there and the yeah no, I I see that in front of me how do you, how you just do that yeah lovely cats by the way <laughs> I think I had, had two two cats materialized <laughs> during this okay. time. <laughs> it's awesome no but I think what you said there about like actually having the team discover. The roadmap is an important distinguisher because like you can give a team a roadmap but if you actually kind of lead them to it a bit like and have them discover it themselves i mean the difference in how much ownership they will feel is just night and day so like 
we shouldn't just give it to them like they should work it out themselves and then suddenly they'll be like yeah really taking ownership in a in a different way perfect perfect great answers again um and last but certainly not least with their question uh kit yeah that, actually that thank you jacob that was a really good segue into my question <laughs> which is actually taking just that a little bit further i mean because i i also i've been thinking a little bit about that actually what happens i mean if you're a if you're a leader providing a vision and then the team gets to discover how to fulfill that vision that's basically what you mentioned jacob uh, but then, you know, you can also be the one that just leads and facilitates the team to discover the vision as well, or the strategy. Or, or um, so I, I mean, there's there's benefits and uh, and, and uh, <laughs> the opposite to to both of those ways, right? But my question is like, how, uh, what ways do you think that there are to lead and facilitate a team to collectively discover its vision as well? It's sometimes really difficult to do this as well, because if especially if you're stuck in an office, just just one example here how to do it, right? Uh, if you're stuck in an office and you go about and everyone's like, yeah, I just need that, you know, three, four hour time slot for myself and I can think about this and, you know, or we, we're trying to find a meeting slot. I think really sometimes you have to do that, like pull everyone by the hair and say, hey, we're going to go off you know outside of office you know two days to this place uh, have some nice time together and then you just drop everything else like put the put the phones in this little box and then uh, let's focus on this and then you know use whatever tools to kind of spur your your um, um your creativity there and, and 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 really you know there's so many ways of how you can actually work with kind of um uh, creativity and really make teams, um, you know, uh, lose those boundaries and just start start shooting the shit, so to say. So I think that it really you can go that really kind of hands-on approach and just like, hey, off we go, make time in your calendar. Uh, at office doesn't work. Let's just go off-site and and do this for a while. That, that's one way, I guess. I'm yeah, I mean, I I think uh, yeah. Well, to, you did mention this kit, but I like I'm. I'm not sure it's a good idea to collectively come up with a vision, <laughs> but you know sometimes it's good. And uh, but in terms of strategy, I think that that's that's cool. I think that that is something you should do. But either way, um, you know, one way I suppose is to you know there are diff a lot of different uh, brainstorm exercises, of course, that you can do. Um, I think one is also you know get inspiration, look at things that you like, and collectively agree on on some opinions at least like we all like this game or we are like this or we don't like that uh, or and you know, bring out some facts like have a common ground that you can stand on at least so you like we agree that you know, this is how the world looks like today these are the facts uh, and what can we do to you know exist in this reality um, i think that those are some kind of concrete things you can look at if you need to collectively come up with a vision. I also think that like coming back to the, what I referenced earlier, how like you'll get team members who come and kind of poke you a bit and be like, what should we be aiming for next? And like, they want the easy answer. Um, so it's a matter of also like biting your tongue a bit sometimes. And like, because over time, like, the level of execution if they take ownership and really like drive the roadmap themselves is much faster in my experience um, but maybe there's a difference there also between like the operational roadmap ahead where you want them to take ownership but whereas the original vision i can agree that you might want to have a, a lead that sets that in like the north star so to speak yeah i um i I hear you on that one also, Patrick, that uh, it might not be a good idea all the time. And especially for, for really, you know, big AAA games, I, I, I do think that there's a place for someone that is a strong creative face uh, and for the vision and, 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 and the project. So um, I think that has a lot of value to have that. Um, what, I, I, what I think can work 
if you want to facilitate a group of people to discover a vision and strategy is still like if you have a creative lead with a vision for a game, you still might want to have a group of leads that wants to like uh, take that vision further or maybe just make that, that vision a little bit more tangible before it's ready to go to the team. And then they would, you know, what we discussed previously would take that and, and materialize it into a roadmap, um, I, I think. Yeah, I think like if you go to the strategy part of this also, like suppose you have agreed on a vision and to kind of, well, no, if we say that you know, strategy, essentially it's like, what actions do you take to reach that vision, right? And there are many ways, you know, say that we want to make the best shooter in the world. Okay, but <laughs> there are many ways to do that and try to kind of, uh, you know, build almost like hypotheses around that, like, you know, you, you can lay out all these, these are all the different roads that we have to, to build the best shooter in the world. Uh, and you start discussing around that. And then I think you'll, you're, you'll discover again, when you meet reality that well, this road, it will take 10 years. So that's not going to be feasible. This road you know, requires some skill set that we don't uh, master today. So that's probably not a good road either. And you start kind of narrowing down like which hypotheses or roads that you can take to reach that goal. Um, that's something I've, I've used a little bit before. And I, I think that that's, uh, it's been very successful in my mind. Yeah, I, I, I think it's important what you're also come, what you're um getting into a little bit there that uh, i mean when you provide a vision for a team that you want them to like uh, convert into a, a roadmap it's really important that you have the limitations in there as well you know a, a, a vision should also be a framework right so it can't just be completely open i think that's an important thing and i've used the um, the big hairy um goal uh, bhag from uh, I guess Ian Collins there and good to great used that in his book at least and others since. But but um, as as that kind of definite like this is the number we're gonna hit uh, and uh, you know very something very concrete and out of that right you, you can start breaking it down into smaller pieces and so forth. But but that you can almost say that's kind of a vision as well right? because it needs to be a good vision as well. I think it's something that really. Uh, it gives you that feeling in the stomach, right? That's that's kind of scary and big, uh, but it's actually possible. I you know I think I can solve this kind of right uh, because if you just like, hey, we're all going to be nice to each other, well, yeah, you know, <laughs> we'll figure it out. <laughs> but but it needs to be something that is really uh, gives you gives you that uh, that gut feeling of like, oh, I'm gonna this is gonna I'm gonna enjoy this. This is gonna be a good problem to solve. Yeah, I think like if. Now, one thing is if you try to come up with a vision collectively, you also you usually end up with, you know, what in Swedish you say melon milk, compromise. which is like you compromise a lot and you don't get that edge perhaps that you need in a vision, um, and that all that also leads I think to the you know what's the balancing act between your gut feeling like I think I can get this to work and where reality comes in like. So, you know, a lot of times the, the 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 real successful products are very visionary, and they do defy some some of reality and and create a new space for them, right? So that balancing act is is really hard. Let's see, uh, something I've been thinking about there also is if, if I look at like products that comes out of the Japanese market, for example, where it's you know they're very focused on vision, and there's always I mean one person leading almost the entire life mission. So it, it's the opposite of how uh, uh, collectively discover vision almost. Uh, but what you usually get is really tight product, you know, and a really good product for what it is. And when you look at some products that comes maybe from our, our culture, they can be a little bit more, you know, they can, what do you call it? What's the English word? It's help me out here. <laughs> it's, it goes in different directions a little bit, right? Uh, and it might be not as tight in some, I, of course, there are examples that are really good as well. But just in general, I think you can see that there's a little bit difference there, maybe, between how, how the games are built in different cultures. Yeah, I have an anecdote on that, which is, you know, you mentioned Japanese. So I had the opportunity to work with uh, the creator of uh, 
Super Smash Bros. Uh, when I was at Mojang, so we did, you know, the Minecraft characters in Super Smash, and I, I did uh, meet uh, Sakurai-san a, a few times. And uh, the first time we met, he basically came out with, a, I don't know, I remember, like a hundred slides deck and detailing, like, this is how your fighter will work. You know, exactly. Each single move, like all the tweaks and everything, and all the details, and they were like, yeah, they look, this looks good. You, you, you nailed the character, that's good. And we, we, I was thinking like, well, you know, you're gonna change everything by the end of this, right? And and you know, a couple of years down the line, it's like, yeah, that was exactly what he 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 detailed, and that was in the game. It's like, okay, this is impressive. Uh, we would never been able to do that here in the West. Perfect, perfect. I think we've just got time for our extra question as well, you know. So I don't know how much uh, preparation people did for this final question. Um, Tobias, do you want to ask that one if you've got it in front of you? I I do in a second here. Yeah, um, we need to have something COVID related in here as well, right? Even though we're if we're still in it or just out of it, I'm not sure. But how to how to actually work with the with your vision uh, in general uh, during such a time of, of, of COVID, right? Where uh, where people are not in the same physical space, right? Um, and I guess even also relevant for, for what's going to be very common in the future, right? like a remote uh, or mixed remote in office type of, of situation. How, when you can't really gather <laughs> everyone in the same spot, how do you roll out that vision and make sure everyone actually got it? Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot, actually. Um, so, something I've, I have discovered, at least, is that you know, uh, some activities like just you know exec executing on things, like when you finish up and actually ship a game. I think you can do it quite successfully, actually. Or we did that uh, during COVID. It's like, okay, this this kind of works. Uh, we we can make it work. But what is super challenging, I think, is when you're trying to align on something, on a vision, when things are not clear and you need to, well, need more clarity and, and you need to agree on things. That's when it becomes really tough when you're not in the same room, I think. Um, so it's, uh, I don't know the perfect solution, but uh, we tried uh, uh, you know, different tools, I suppose, where, uh, you know, uh, Miro has been really useful for us, where uh, it's really, really accessible, very visual tool. Uh, so very concretely, that's that's that was uh, one part of the solution. Um, and also, you know, be 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 clear on always be explicitly kind of inclusive uh, of opinions and and then my, my, what people think about things. So. Uh, yeah, those are kind of some of the concrete things that that uh, we've done so far. Yeah, I second the use of uh, of Miro. It's uh, it's a great tool in my experience, and um, I mean, you do what you can to make it more interactive. Like people can vote up questions, add their sticky notes. Like um, I think tools have evolved a bit uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. Like it's been. <laughs> fueling that uh, evolution. Um, we could also like do a combination of things like send, send stuff that make people energized at home. So they get something to, you know, yeah, to eat or drink and get them a, a bit more energized uh, while you do the workshop. And then also I would say like, uh, be mindful of, of how our attention span works. Like uh, don't do like two, two and a half hour workshops, uh, do smaller ones like, uh, like an hour, then you do a break, then you might do another one. Uh, I mean, people need time to digest these uh, quite abstract visions and stuff. So maybe let it sit with them for a bit and then have you, you know, do a follow-up session. And yeah, that's been working quite well in my experience. Yeah, I think what also someone touched upon there uh, earlier when, you know, uh, it, it's important that the team gets excited about a vision. And that is really, I mean, you can be really super clear in the presentation and roll out the vision, sort of say. Uh, but, you know, the excitement of being together in a room and uh, 
taking part in that vision is much much harder so i think that is a, a that, that's something that we haven't really solved like how how we get people to get excited together it's 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 a bit awkward i would say at the moment <laughs> um so so that yeah i don't have a good solution either but also if there's one tool mira is certainly helped us to um instead of having post-its on the wall and workshops mira has been the best thing so far i've seen as well so it helps uh, but i think um if you want people to really um buy into the vision i think it's all about um trying to communicate as clearly and as often as possible i mean even if it feels like you're said in a million times keep saying it i think that's important as well um because there's always going to be someone that's not there right uh people coming onto the project all the time or someone's sick so yeah that's important i think i think you had a really good point there kids with you know, getting people excited. I think that you know that is a big part of a vision, and and having people align or engage in something is excitement. And and just like and one and another analogy is like, how do you have a a party? You know, through Zoom or or Teams. Like, it's really really hard uh, because that is about excitement and engagement. And so it's the same thing. Like, if you want to have people buy into a vision, it's just really really hard <laughs> through through it. Uh, a screen. Yeah, I don't. We. I don't think we've figured that one out yet. No, and it is also tricky to make. You know, you can read a group uh, or even individuals in a room, right? But it's really difficult to read them over online. But um, while we're talking about various tools, and I totally agree that the tools and the the um, the experience of using tools like this have certainly increased. You know. 10 times or more during this period, right? But another great tool that I can definitely recommend and try uh, with, with great success is Toucan, like the big beaked um, uh, parrot kind of thingy, uh, but it's like an online communication channel, which does what everyone else does, but it just makes it nicer and have the round table function and a scene. And you can really have like mingle sessions within that tool and, and it, it actually really works. And it feels a little bit like walking around in that, uh, uh, Marriott lobby bar at GDC, right? Because you see who's there and you can move around and talk to various people. And that's um, that, that's been um, uh, so much better than these uh, kind of more one-to-one -one kind of tools. So I can definitely recommend it. Yeah, I mean, I, we also tried out the Horizons Workrooms, which is you know Facebook's VR meeting app. It, it's, uh, it's a bit strange, but it actually, it does add something uh, when you can see actually body language and, and you have... A physical space, like you need when you when you address someone, you actually have to turn your head and like look at someone, which you kind of don't get in a screen, and it makes a big difference. So uh, I think, uh, well, I am biased, of course, but uh, you should you should try it in VR. <laughs> you send me a set, I'll join a meeting with you. Absolutely. <laughs> Perfect. And uh, we'll leave it there. This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank our contributors, Kit, Tobias, Patrick and Jacob for providing their insights into the topic. And thank you all for listening. If you would like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts, reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at jordan.lound at evolution-nordics.com. And uh, we will see you all next time.